What's going on, everybody? This is Black Men Sundays. I'm your host, Corey Sylvester Murray, and we're talking about generational wealth. We're talking about finance, and you know we're talking about business. It's a Black Man Sunday. Time to put all childish things away. I refuse to be the man I was yesterday. Gotta put my best foot forward and elevate. I want to introduce our guest, Ali L. Braswell. This brother here is the newest board member of the Zeta Foundation. This brother's an entrepreneur. This brother's an author. This brother's a speaker. This brother's newest book, Engage, Invest, and Grow. We're going to learn about some tricks and tips from that book. You know, a lot of brothers always tell us you got to get the book first, but he's on the show today. We're going to find out about that. This brother's a CEO of the Braswell Group. We're going to find out what that is. This brother's most recent role, the Senior Vice President of Culture and Belonging for Star Credit Union. This brother's got 12 years experience in the United States Marine Corps. So, you know, I'm not going to mess with this brother here. He's a, He also was the president of the Central Florida Urban League. This brother also served as the uh, National Urban League Housing Task Force. We're going to find out about all that. This brother comes to us decorated. This brother has a master's of arts, human resource management from Webster University. This brother has a bachelor's in information technology from American Intercontinental University. Oh, and this brother too, y'all going to love this. He has an advanced diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, for the slow folks, D-E-N-I certificate from Cornell University. So I can go on for days. But Ali L. Braswell Jr., welcome to Black Men Sundays, brother. How you doing? Good to join you, Corey. I'm doing great, man. Thank you for all those accolades. But you know what? The most important thing is I'm just a little country boy from Oviedo that got an opportunity to go out and do some great things and, and make a difference. And in fact, I'm just flying back in from Boston after watching the Army beat Navy yesterday. That's a tough time in my house, being a Marine and also serving as a civilian aide, but glad to join you today. Well, you're an entrepreneur, author, and a speaker. Let's start out. CEO of the Braswell Group. What is that? Well, the Braswell Group is an organization I started back in January 2014 as I was preparing to leave the Urban League and move on to assist community in how to build incredible bonds that lead to lasting impact. So not just a tagline from the book. But really what I believed in is that if we're going to build and grow as a community, we have to come together. And so one of the things I wanted to do was to start a company that would allow me to reach out and do that. And so fast forward through a couple different career iterations, I've always had the company. And in August of this year, I left to go back and run it full time. And so what the Braswell Group is focused on is teaching people how to build results-oriented community engagement community engagement that makes a difference, that you expect a return on your time, talent, and treasure that you put in, and that you're going to actually build those things with DEI in mind. When we talk about it is one of the things I like to say, Corey, is, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion is, is great if we believe in it, but we have to believe in it. And one of the best things about it is I do a little flip on the play on the words by saying, if we talk about humanity, equity, inclusion, that's talking about everybody. Because last time I checked, people walking around on two legs are all human. And when we talk about coming together and respecting each other as human beings, you know, I harken back to Dr. King and others who talked about how do we do this? We just want to be treated as humans and everyone wants to be treated as a human. So uh, one of the things I love to talk about is when we think about the, the common denominator of all of us, 
Every single one of us is human. And when we talk about black men, uh, Hispanic men, white men, it doesn't have to be derived by color. Race is a social construct that was created, uh, you know, far before the, the uh, Spanish American war and those things, race, we treated everybody as human. Uh, even though we looked at different things that how we treated other humans through slavery and things like that history that we cannot erase, we still treated each other as human at some point, And we need to get back to that. I don't, I don't want to go off on a deer tribe, but as you can see, I'm real passionate about bringing people together and building community. And so at the Braswell Group, we focus on three areas. We focus on consulting to help build strategies that really lead to key community engagement. Uh, we also talk about leadership development, teaching people how to grow as leaders and coach and encourage people to give their best to where we create an attitude of where everyone has a sense of belonging. And when we do that, everybody feels respected because I ask you to be at the table. You're appreciated because I value your opinion and you're valued because we're all coming together with the desire to do something special. The last thing is I travel and I speak and do keynotes and encourage people just to grow together and build incredible relationships like I've been the beneficiary of and continue to make deposits into each and every day. At what point did you decide in your career, okay, we're going to start the Broswell Group and, you know, but give us some some numerical information, like from a financial point of view, how did you know that, you know, you had the finances to start a business and also from a financial perspective, if you had any fears going in before you did, and if you did, what were they and how did you overcome them? Lashanta, my wife would tell you that you cannot be an entrepreneur without having fear try to creep up on you. But what you have to do is have faith to continue to do it and continue to move forward. Uh, so, you know, back in 2014, I wanted to do my own thing. I had the funds in place and I stepped out. And, you know, uh, it's not always a home run. But what I tell people is keep the job and use that as the on-ramp to the entrepreneurship. You know, use that while you got you got to pay the bills while you build the dream. Because if you don't pay the bills, they'll catch up on you sooner or later. And then that's the delay of the dream. Uh, I remember when I wrote my first book, Rekindling the Passion, Restoring the Joy and Purpose in Your Life. It was all about being a young 35-year-old trying to figure out what do I do next because I felt stuck. But what I did was find that I needed to reconnect spiritually in order to be able to move ahead. And when I got my faith in alignment, you know, just like God says, if you put him first, everything else aligns. But let's talk, let's talk real numbers and be real transparent. Um, this time around, you know, I'd done everything that I thought that I could accomplish in my last position. But I also had enough funding to be able to self-fund the startup of my business and keep everything running in my household for a number of months. And that then I put a plan in action. What was that plan? What are the things I needed to do in order to be able to move forward? So once I had the financing in place so that I wouldn't cause disruption to my life or my lifestyle, then that gave me the ability to do to move forward. But let's say Braswell Group now is in its ninth year. So you know it's not a it's not a quick start, it's not a get rich quick. It is a planned execution of strategies to get things done. And then you got to have some partners. And this is where relationships really come into being. Because you got to have people with different levels of expertise coming to the table to help you think through it. Now, my wife is an entrepreneur. She owns two uh, educational companies, uh, one Scholar Metrics, which is around tutoring and teaching. And then she owns the Gentry School. So she kind of had that 
that leg up on this so that I could always go to someone. And I think that's important. Have a mentor, coach, friend, family member that you can go to and talk to because entrepreneurship isn't easy, but it's worth it. It's not going to be uh, instant success always overnight. Now, there are some who have done that and I, I applaud them. But, you know, the road is long and, and the journey is long. It's a marathon, not a sprint. So what I did was put in place a good business plan. What did I need to accomplish? And then I started executing. And then along the way, over even the last 120 days of my relaunch, uh, people are amazed at what we've been able to accomplish, you know, laying out the total outline of the company, uh, creating the framework, the ship framework around relationship building, and then teaching that and putting it together to be to be taught and transferred to others. And then writing the book, all of this, having resources and great people in place that you can reach out to and say, I'm looking for X. And they say, well, this person, this person. And then you vet those people and you come back with someone that says, okay, I can help you do this part. I can help you create this piece. And then, you know, and the great thing about it is I was able to find people right within our community who could help me do it. And I was investing in other entrepreneurs while I was building out the rest of the Braswell group. Then once we got it built, we had to launch it and communicate it and tell people about it. So it's an ongoing strategy. And like I said, we're 120 days into the relaunch of, of the company because I had put it in mothballs for a while. But, you know, like you said, it was a side hustle that has now become my main source of employment and, and satisfaction. Because when you wake up every morning and you can see a tidbit or you get a phone call saying that a contract has come through that you've been working on, it's just a great feeling and it propels you forward. But I wouldn't be there and I wouldn't be truthful if I didn't say doubt tries to creep in, fear tries to creep in. And the only thing I know that blocks that is having faith in God that I'm here on a purpose. This is a divine assignment that I got to go finish and carry out. So that's why I keep doing what I'm doing, man. And it's it's working. Definitely. And I, and I want to stay on that for a second, you know, because a lot of brothers, you know, I get a lot of emails, man, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur. I have all these ideas, but I don't really have the funds, but let's, I want to talk about funds for a minute. So for the brothers out there that want to be like you and they said, okay, I want to make sure that, you know, I have, I have enough income to take care of the finances when I jump on this entrepreneurial journey. So from a financial point of view for you, how many months would you say, like, do you need six months? Do I need three months? Do I need a year? Like from your financial planning perspective, what type of money and how many months in advance do I need to be successful and not have to worry about the fear of, oh, my lights are going to get cut off? Well, you know, it's crazy because uh, I was listening to Shark Tank. The owner of the Dallas Mavericks said the lights been turned off two or three times on him as you go. Uh, because even in your best plan, sometimes there are hiccups. What I would say a baseline would be to have six to eight months of expenses saved that, so that you can live off of that, so that you can focus on building the business. You know, I, I wouldn't go less than six months because everything isn't overnight, you know, and uh, some people looked at me uh, kind of sideways, like the, uh, the little puppy dog, you know, head to the side going, you're going out in the fourth quarter of the, of the end of the year. I was like, yeah, but the timing was right for me. And, and I had the financial resources to be able to get there. And then you got to always have a plan B. So plan A, you have to work the company and work it well. 
Plan B is where's my point of where, okay, I got to go do, I got to make a shift in my plan to stay focused to be able to take care of my family. But I think a good um, baseline is six to eight months of expenses, uh, you know, because, you know, while you're on your entrepreneurial journey, you don't want other things going crazy in your life. You know, you want to make sure that you're taking care of home, making sure that you're taking care of the expenses, making sure that lifestyle doesn't get interrupted. But, you know, when you do that and you plan for it correctly, it, it can be very rewarding. And that's what it's been for me. Uh, uh, have there been days and months that I've looked at it and go, OK, what did I do? Where, where, where's my plan? And that's why you got to have a plan and you got to have a good partner. Uh, family's got to be on board with where you're going. You can turn and come together and continue to move forward. And that's really what's been sustaining me. I, I hope that answers your question. But I would say six to eight months is a minimum. And just to verify, when you're saying six to eight months, I mean, you know, my mortgage, you know, my cable mortgage. bill, should I, do I need, but I guess my question for you is, do I need to, you know, if I've got the premium cable package, do I need to bring it down to the basic? You know, if I have, you know, 10 or 12 apps that I pay monthly fees on, I have credit card, you know, I'm, I'm look, I'm a black man. I'm gonna keep it real. Christmas is coming up. Right. I've been swiping the card a little bit. And, you know, with this inflation, that swiping ain't the swiping from five years ago. You want to have a budget. You want to look at what your monthly expenses are, where you can cut back and prepare for that launch. You want to cut back. You know, you, you don't have to go in and strip everything away. But you got you know some of the things that you delay now, you can have better later. So then if you are on the premium package and you can cut back, I looked at that. I looked at my phone. I looked at what my internet package was. And, you know, so I could get a clear understanding of what is my monthly spend. And then once I knew what my, so because it's not your income, it's your spend, it's your expenses. And, you know, and then I looked at things and even had some conversations because we got caught up in that, that Instacart and they, uh, <laughs> it, it's easy to order out because, you know, we're, we're empty nesters to a certain degree. But we uh, we started talking and it was a, it was a commitment on both our sides to say, what what can we do and how can we do it better? And I'm going to be honest, we did not cut everything because we had enough to be able to plan, but we didn't go overboard either because, you know, with building this business, I had to travel. I got to get in front of people, I had to publish the books and, and get the plan put together. So taking the time to look at your finances lay it out clear, come up with what is that number that you got? What is that burn rate? That's what we call it in business, right? What is that burn rate monthly that you got to meet that's got to keep the lights on? Because the worst thing you can do is go into something where then it becomes displeasurable and that's when fear and doubt starts to creep in. So when you, you have that and then you got your partner on board with you, you know, because there's some times when you just got to talk each other through it and you got to talk each other through the finances and when you do that, you know, if you if you if you cut the fat now, streamline, come up with what is my baseline expenses, my mortgage, my car, you know, and come up with a plan of how do you use credit wisely as you can use credit. But understand that minimum monthly payment is going to come and you don't want to damage what you just built by missing a payment. So it's really taking a look at it, looking at your your minimums and your maximums, leveraging credit wisely and using it to help move your business forward. And then, you know, it doesn't hurt to sit down with a, a person like your credit union and say, hey, this is what my budget looks like. What, what is, you know, are there anything else? Is there anything else I can do 
that helps. Or is it, you know, whoever that is, that finance person in your life. But then really coming back and saying, okay, this is the next six to eight months that I can do this, keep my family sound, make sure things are moving just like we've been moving and continue to move forward. And I would say one of the things is don't go and get into any additional expenditures during the middle of it, you know, unless it's business related. One of the things I would encourage is once you have formed the company is to begin to put together what does your credit portfolio look like around the company and being able to build up your credit around your company entity and not just your personal credit. But understanding that it's going to take a combination of both your personal and the company's line of credit in order for you to get it built and sustain it. Because at some point, you want to take it off of your personal and move the credit and then the lines of credit over to your business. And that's one of the hardest things is being able to get access to capital. And the sooner you can build up capital lines and be careful of the fly-by-night programs out there. Make sure you verify and check and validate that the people who say they're going to help you do something is bona fide and real and not, not just a scam because you don't want to be taken. And unfortunately, there are people out there who will try to take advantage of young entrepreneurs or new entrepreneurs coming into the market space. Wow, man. man! I feel like I can talk to you all day. You know, people say I'm the Allen Iverson of asking questions. And because it's just me and you today, I'm going to I'm gonna shoot all the balls up. So here's my next question, man. You know, we had a lawyer on a week ago. We had lawyers on. We have brothers that are on their own practices. But, you know, I hear a lot of brothers, they'll say, hey, you know, I'm, I started I started a business. I'm a new entrepreneur, but I haven't really made any money yet. But do I need an attorney first? And then at that point, do I need to trademark my business? Like, what are your thoughts on those perspectives? Yes. And yes. So one of the things is my ship's framework. When you start to talk about what your intellectual property is, you need to have protections in place because everybody's not like you and I, Corey, and going to be above board. People will take your idea and run with it and make millions off of it. But if you trademark it and protect it, they can't. There are protections in place. You want to have an attorney help you structure the company correctly or use one of the filing services. I know when I first started the Braswell Group, Braswell Management Group, I went through bids filing or and, and things like that. And of course, you can file through some bids, but you still want somebody to check and make sure that your company's formed correctly and then that your accounting is set up correctly. So you want to talk to people like an accountant. You want to talk to an attorney about the structure of your company, but most definitely trademark your intellectual property. Uh, the Braswell Group is trademarked. The, when the statement of ship's framework is trademarked. Results-oriented community engagement is trademarked because that's the intellectual property that I can't get back if somebody were to try to hijack it or, or borrow it with no intent to, to make me whole. So yes, I, I would encourage them to seek an attorney, seek guidance. And you know, uh, trademarking has a cost to it, but the value that you you safeguard is 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 your profit, is your future, is your money that will come out of your ideas. And uh, so many times I've seen people borrow one of my ideas and then I see it turn down. So one of the things I learned, and I learned the hard way, I was running my lips, but I hadn't trademarked my intellectual property. So this time around, I'm making sure that I did those actions before I ever start putting it out there heavily. In the intro, I said, you know, 12 years, U.S. Marine Corps, 
Um, I'm also looking at your resume. You know, you're also a U.S. Army Reserve Ambassador. So at what point, and also, you know, from a military perspective coming up, like how did that military grooming like shape your entrepreneurial success? Well, you know what? I think it, it gave me the discipline to believe that I can do anything if I put my mind to it. You know, my parents taught me that, you know, uh, it used to be interesting because I hear people talk about, well, you know, Blacks are liberal. No, man, I came out one of the most conservative Baptist households that you can imagine. My grandfather was a pastor. And, you know, I happen to be from a family of Marines. So being, being number eight in that list, it really gave me the discipline and the guidelines and an example to follow of what I wanted to be. And as an entrepreneur, so you got to get yourself up in the morning and go get it. Uh, I, I love my son uh, observe. I left on August 4th and on August 6th, I was working. Okay. <laughs> and he was like, well, he didn't even take a day off. No, because see, you got to be able to have that drive and determination. And that's one of the things I think the Marine Corps instilled in me. And now, yes, I served as a U.S. Army Reserve Ambassador, which was a two-star post with the Army Reserve. And I currently serve now as the civilian aide to the Secretary of the Army, where I get to uh, work with the commands to help identify young people and, and provide opportunities to connect with community. But I also get to advise the Secretary on how to connect with our communities. And most recently, like I said, I was at the Army-Navy game with, with several of my colleagues it's a pretty cool opportunity, but it constantly reinforces that what I learned as a young Marine, know yourself and seek self-improvement. So I had to know me. I had to know what runs me, what drives me, what makes me get up and get it done. And then to be able to get up in the mornings at 6, 30, 7 o'clock, and then still get up and go out here and hit it. Now my commute is 13 steps from the bedroom where it used to be 13 miles to the office, but I got to treat it just like a job. And I remember in covid I used to get up and get in the car, Corey, I'm going to sound crazy. I used to get up and get in the car and go drive around for about two or three miles so I could just have the feeling of going to work. And that was still in a corporate position. So there are some times where I go through the motions just like I'm going to work because, and I think the Marine Corps helped me do that, you know, um, because there wasn't much the Marine Corps uh, took or tolerated in terms of not being disciplined and understanding what you're doing and leading by example. Because if I'm going to go out here and ask people to invest their dollars into my company to help them build strategies that connect with community, I got to be out. I got to be seen. I got to be engaged. But at the same time, you have to build the framework. And sometimes that's the that's the hard part of being an entrepreneur. You got to build the work before you ever take it outside and start selling it. You got to build the templates. You got to write the flywheels out of how your products come together, what's the, the intricacies of how each one of them work. Then you got to write the templates for the proposals. Then you got to write the templates for the deli service deliverables. So, you know, it's the grunt work. And I think that's where, you know, the discipline that I learned in the core keeps me going and allows me to get it done. Now, is that every day I want to do that? No, sir. Uh, <laughs> and there's plenty of times I would rather go get involved in something else. But I will tell you one of the biggest things that we have to avoid as entrepreneurs is social media doing work hours. But being on social media is not necessarily working unless your business is social media. And that can steal hours from you uh, going out, checking LinkedIn, checking Facebook, checking other platforms. But, you know, when I'm on LinkedIn or social or, or an I, 
my social media usually happens later on in the day, but there are times when you really want to make sure that you're getting your message out. So if you're on social media, be on social media with a purpose, a business purpose. So, you know, one of the things is uh, we're getting ready to launch a podcast here uh, beginning of 2024 uh, called Off the Record. And it's it's about having those real conversations. Second, you know, but I had to lay the framework. What does that look like? I know I'm preaching to the choir here. You you got to have a framework of what that looks like before you ever start trying to turn it on the microphone and the, and the camera. So it's spending that time. And I think that's what the military does well is it showed me how to, you know, use the good old Marine Corps five paragraph audit. I need to know the situation. Then I got to come up with what's the mission to accomplish? And then how am I going to execute it? And then, you know, what am I going to need? The administration and logistics of getting that. And then how am I going to execute it? How am I going to manage it? Who else do I need to get involved with? Now, I learned that five paragraph order uh, when I was a young Marine. And as many years ago, many, many gray hairs less. But I was able to take that discipline and that learning of how to plan and execute a strategy and take it forward. And I still use it today, man. Oh, great information, man. You know, I know my listeners are like, let's get to the book, engage, invest, and grow. But I'm I'm setting the stage right now. So let's let's take it to the banking level. You know, you know, you're an executive, five-star credit union, uh, senior VP culture and belonging, right? So here's my question for you. First off, what does that title mean? <laughs> okay. So um when I first went in, I was the vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Vistar was in its 69th year of existence, but it never had a program around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we wanted to make sure that we built a policy and a, a, an initiative that would include everyone. And so I came in and wrote the first ever policy, uh, drafted that for the board to review and approve. Uh, then we were able to staff, and I had a great CEO that believed in diversity, equity, and inclusion because a lot of times when you hire a DEI professional, they hire one person and work them to burn out. And they normally burn out somewhere in 18 to 24 months. But with uh, because of my leaders, I was able to actually hire a team and focus on workforce diversity, supplier diversity, and building out the culture within Vistar to go to the next level because we had gone through some transition. So as things transition and with the attack on DEI with the national narrative, we naturally evolved it to culture and belonging. Because if you build an inclusive culture that has diversity as the given, you know, you can have two twins in the room from the same set of parents and you can still have some diversity. I know I have two sets now. And then when, when you take a look at it, there's still change. There's differences between them. But when we created an environment where everybody has that, what you heard me say earlier, where they're respected, appreciated, and valued, then you create that sense of belonging. So what we did was we evolved the title so it, it wouldn't be attacked unnecessarily into building a unbelievable service excellence culture. So I had that responsibility and continuing to advance diversity, equity, inclusion to create belonging. So when you bring the two together, that's how we get to being the senior vice president of culture and belonging for Vistar, where we built an industry leading uh, practice. I had a great team. And we had great teammates that were a part of the credit union that, you know, in the credit union movement, the eighth cooperative principle that they founded in 2019 is diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
that credit unions who are people helping people wouldn't move to make sure that DEI was a component of who they were. So when I went into ViStar, we built that in three years, created. Now they have 12 ViStar resource groups from the protected classes to even um, service uh, social networks. Like the last one that they were launching before I left was called Lyft. And Lyft was about fitness. And then they're launching a new one, which was called Level Up, which all was about teaching people or get people who had an affinity for gaming. So we find where you are and we create an environment where you can bring your true self to the table. And that's how you get culture and belonging. So it's a it's an advancement and a play on diversity, equity, inclusion, because that's totally ingrained. And uh, the program that we all jointly built at Vistar uh, do a, a uh, independent survey was found to be 17% better than the industry norms as evaluated by the employees, not by the company, but the employees saying that they felt that we had a real program. So that's uh, that was that body of work. And when I felt I had achieved all I could achieve or my assignment was complete, that's when I wanted to step out and teach others how to do the same thing. And that's what I'm doing with the Braswell Group. How did the importance of the Vistar role help you you know, with the mindset of the Braswell Group? So, you know, when I went in, the Braswell Group was something that I always wanted. And uh, 2021 threw me some curves because life will throw you some curves and some hurdles to overcome. And, um, but Vistar was that that foundation where I could put my, my time, talent, and treasure and see the return on investment. And that's why you hear me talk about results-oriented community engagement. A lot of times organizations will put money out, but they will have no engagement. Uh, you know, for example, have you ever been to a fundraising event, like a dinner, and you'll see a table sponsored by a company, but there's no one at the table? Well, are they then really engaged? Are they committed? Because uh, that's where I really talk about the ships framework that's in the book, is that you know, the way you build critical relationships and credible relationships is by number one, partnering. You got to be in it together. It's not just write a check and don't show up. The most in, um, informed companies like Florida Blue, for example, with the Florida Classic in Orlando, their CEO in Jacksonville shows up to the Classic luncheon, the kickoff, because they're engaged, they're in, they're they're invested, and they you know then when they grow, they grow the company and they grow the community. That's kind of how the the title of my book came about. Was looking at the ship's framework. And I was at a uh, Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated event, the Getting in Good Trouble Awards, which uh, I'll take a little pride there. I created when I was the president of the Orlando Sigmas and my brothers bought into the vision. Through that, we wanted to raise even more money than we had ever done before to be able to give back to the communities through scholarships and youth development. But to be able to bring a company on board that would sponsor that and see it grow and see it make a difference was important. And we were able to do that and then have people make sure that they show up and bring their senior leadership. You see, results-oriented community engagement is about having the C-suite and decision makers at the table, not just the people who the affinity of that group is all about, if you follow what I'm meaning. You know, a lot of times they'll sponsor the NAACP the dinner, but you'll never have decision makers in the room. You'll have members of that particular segment of the community who is represented in the company, but the decision makers aren't there. But when you have the decision makers like a Florida Blue who show up and sit at the table and are a part of the 
you don't have to go back and have the argument about why we should invest and why we should grow. And then you also like when I was with Vistar, we would go down the MLK parade route and people would yell out, that's my credit union. That's my Vistar. I have my mortgage there. Those are the things where people build an affinity for the brand because they see you involved and engaged in their communities. I hope that answers your question. You can see I'm passionate about that. But what it did was build, as I built this, I saw, let me go take this to other companies, other credit unions, because they weren't doing this. They weren't making this dent. And then being able to do that, I continue to advance that craziness that I believe in, uh, people helping people. And that's really what I'm trying to do with my company and with my work. Definitely, man. Great information. Let's let's jump into this new book, Engage, Invest, Grow. What was the impetus for writing the book? Well, I looked at it. You know, everyone says, well, Allie knows everybody. And uh, my son won't go to meetings with me right now because he thinks I know everybody. And we were up in Boston, Corey, just this weekend, my wife and I. And I said I had not gotten it out of my mouth. See? I don't know anybody in Boston. Did somebody walk right up? Well, is that you? I was like, okay. But you know what it is? It's, it's relationships. And so when I was at the uh, last Getting in Good Trouble Awards luncheon in June of this year, I, I said, you know, it's really about ships. And it's really about learning how to build great relationships through partnerships. And the way you do that is through scholarship, not scholarship, but writing a check to send somebody to college but the high ideal of scholarship of learning about each other. I need to know something about you. I need to spend some time and invest time and talent and treasure into that. And you know, what I like to say is in the book, I talk about relationships because it's about the bond that you build that is lasting and influential. And I talk about how Bob Billingsley, one of my mentors at Disney, saw me as a young manager and would invest time, would invest treasure, uh, let me invest in, let me support what you're doing. But it also gave great guidance. And so when you do that, that's how you begin to build partnerships. And scholarship is interwoven through all of that. Because see, I got to learn about you. Like right now we're learning about each other. So what we're doing is making a deposit in a relationship. And you got to make deposits in relationships before you make withdrawals. Because sometimes when you go to make that withdrawal, you find that that comes back with insufficient funds, right? And uh the insufficient funds is when you say, hey, will you sponsor this? Well, you know, I, I don't know enough about what you're doing. No, I, I can't bring my dollars to bear or bring my talents to bear. But when you go into building relationships by creating genuine partnerships, you never know what the relationship catalyst is going to be. In this case, uh, Corey, we're building a relationship right now. And the, and the, the impetus was my soror actually reaching out and saying, hey, you should have this guy on your show. Okay, now I get a chance to build a relationship with you, learn more about Black Men Sundays, be able to now start sharing some of my intellectual wealth with you all by saying, hey, you need to go listen to this. This is what they're talking about. Because see, now I'm beginning to go through that learning process, which is the scholarship. That's the second piece in the ship's framework. The third piece is sponsorship. Sponsorship isn't always about writing a check, but it is. But it isn't always. Sometimes, Corey, it could be, hey, I need to meet this person. And I know you know them. Would you mind making a recommendation? Would you mind opening the door? 
Well, if you know enough about me and I come with the right character and the right reputation and you've gotten to know me through that partnership and through scholarship, you don't mind being a sponsor and open that door. I had, you know, you'll see in the book, I talked extensively about Bob Billingsley because Bob was just that dude, man. He was he was the smooth capper brother with the cool hair. And he's the only dude I know could rock suede, suede jacket and shoes at the same time, okay? But, you know, and I looked at him and I saw myself, hey, if I want to be like somebody, that's who I want to be like. And so what I try to do in the book is walk you through that framework, framework of learning how to build creed partnerships, learning how to, through scholarship, learn about each other that leads to sponsorship. And once I've opened the door, Corey, I, I have a sense of ownership now, right? I got to make sure you're successful because, you know, my receipts are now on the table. Because people will go, wait a minute, Allie vouched for this person or Corey opened the door for this person. So now I, I have a vested interest. And so what I share in the book is, is that framework and how we can build incredible relationships. I talk about how those have done it. And, you know, even, even the person who wrote my foreword came from a relationship. I met General Paul Funk while being a civilian aide and ended up taking this brother with me all the way to uh, Myrtle Beach to the to the uh, Sigma Conclave. And, you know, that even parlayed into this year, a bigger relationship with the Army, where the Army came and brought an entire entourage. And we hired young uh, collegiates out of my fraternity through relationships. So what the book is about is it's engaging and investing. If you engage with your community, engage in your relationships, invest your time, talent, and treasure by respecting, appreciating, and valuing people, then we all grow together. Communities grow when organizations do that and they do it with, with intent. People grow when we do that with intent. So uh, that's what the book, you know, I'll talk your ear off, but it's a blueprint of what, you know, I share some of my thoughts about how do you, how do you make those deposits? And you know what, Corey, that deposit is as simple as sending an email sometime, sending a text, staying in touch. You know, what it's not is seeing you today and then next time you see me, I'll come in and say, hey, could you uh, write me a check for X, Y, Z? Could you be here? Could you do this? That's not a real good cultivation of a relationship. And it's just making time. And that's what I've done. And that's what has uh, been a key and a cornerstone to my success. Wow, man, you're blowing me away right now. You know, as a black man, right? We, I feel like as black men, we're more on the competitive side than the collaborative side. But then as I have you on the show as I've had other guests on? I'm like, wow, you know, a lot of the guests are collaborating, but on the lower level, we're competing with each other. So what can we do as black men to change the competitive mindset into, into more of a collaborative mindset? Well, you know, what? it was interesting. It's like uh, many a year ago, I sold life insurance. I was in Primerica Financial Services. A lot of people say, like, where you get your financial knowledge? Well, I had the licenses, the six to 63 the mortgage broker license. And, you know, and they used to do competitiveness. But what I would see is people go at it. But what I found was I found the sweet spot is if I can help you get to where you want to be, I'm going to get to where I want to be. And what I read was I've read Napoleon Hill's book and I've read uh, Art uh, Williams, who, who created the termites with A.L. Williams. And I do a lot of reading and I found what, the, what the, the recurring theme was, if you help many get to where they want to be, you'll get there too. 
So I don't have to compete with you. Let me go out here and figure out how we could come together and accomplish something together because you may bring a unique talent to the table that I don't have. And when we come together, we can go get more done. And we can still compete and have fun with it, but it's okay to compete. It's another thing when we start comparing. When we start comparing ourselves to each other, that's when the negatives can slip in. The negatives of, well, he thinks he's better than me, or hey, you know, or they think they're better than this, or you know, he's got a better break than me. No, it may be the fact of his work ethic. It may be different, but we all come from a common bond, and that's being black men. And when we can come together, share collaboratively, we can propel all of us forward and arrive at a destination that I truly believe all of us can hit together. So I'm, I'm constantly looking for an opportunity to promote and push somebody else. Because in doing that, if I help others get to where they want to be, I'll get to where I want to be. Yeah, definitely, man. Because, and the reason why I asked that question, you know, I hear it all the time, man. You know, oh, this guy, he, he making this money now. You know, he he left the hood. He think he all that now. And it's like, well, no, you know, this brother, let him elevate. And I feel like a lot of brothers kind of want to, once they're, they start elevating or once we start elevating, then it's kind of like you go back to the neighborhood and people treat you like you're not black anymore. I'm just being honest. You know what I mean? So, but that leads to my next question, you know, because from a business point of view, even I've noticed it with Black Men Sundays, like, partnerships sponsorships you know you get emails starting to come in but you know i think i messed up because when i think of a partnership off top i'm thinking money you know so companies hey we love black men sundays let's partner you know i'm thinking cha-ching but then once you meet and you realize oh okay you know it may be a non-profit but it's still advancing the movement of generational wealth forward so how do we as black men understand the difference between a sponsorship and a partnership from a business perspective? Yeah, so let's break it down like I do in the book. A partnership is coming together for a common goal. It doesn't always have to be about money. You know, if, if I have a Rolodex, I think someone looked at my uh, LinkedIn and said, Allie, how the heck do you have 9,000 connections? And I had to tell them, you know, I probably know 3,800 of them, but I don't know how I got all the rest. But can you see the value in me putting out and posting in my LinkedIn profile about Black Men Sundays? Now you're reaching people that you may never have reached before. And there's an opportunity to come together and have a spirit of partnership. Partnership says that I value you and I hope that you value me and we're going to come together for a common goal. Sometimes that's monetarily an investment. Sometimes that's just a shared audience. Sometimes it's a sharing and an agreement of sharing ideas. And I would always tell you, get an NDA, get a non-disclosure agreement when you are going back to the legal side, when you start to share ideas. But when we partner together and I build a partnership, I have a vested interest in you being successful. I want to see you successful because I don't want to hang my brand or put my name associated with anybody that isn't being successful. So I'm very careful about who I partner with. But when we partner, I come with my whole self. I come and I don't mind opening doors because what I will have done, and I think this is the key right here, is spend some time doing the scholarship. Let me learn about you. Let me learn about the character that you bring to the table. Let me learn. And I think that's where when you learn about each other and you begin to share and engage, that's when you begin to build the partnership. 
that a partnership may move to a point of a legal contract where you're sharing resources and revenues. But if you don't have the foundation, that's genuinely when they go to go south. And then when you the way it moves, the sponsorship is like, you know, I, I remember when I was at Disney, Bob was a director and would soon become a vice president in the organization. But Bob saw ways of opening doors for me. And that was his way of sponsoring me when he put me in meetings or when people are talking about you when you're not in the room and it's positive. So sometimes you got to have those champions that are opening doors for you. You don't even know the door was there. Uh, and I got proof of that the other day. I was at an event and one of the uh, young ladies I knew while I was at the Urban League. In fact, when I started at the Urban League, Central Florida Urban League, she thought of her law firm and she's on WESH too. And we were at the Classic and she brought her mentee over and says, I want you to meet him. The reason I have my job at WESH too is because he talked about me when I wasn't in the room. So see, when you can have sponsorship happening and opening doors for you, that by somebody's giving their intellectual capital, their relationship capital and putting it on the table for you and giving you a receipt that you haven't even probably earned yet or didn't know that you earned, that's how you move in. Bob Billingsley, I would later find out from his, uh, his widow, incredible Dee Dee Billingsley honored me so when she said, you were one of Bob's young lions. And Bob's young lions were those he invested in, who he put time into, who he spent time with. And I knew I had made it to another level, Corey, when I got invited to the house, because I'd never been to the house, you know? And as a young man, young Black man, I'm looking for that Black man that I can emulate, that I can take some of the qualities from, that stay authentically who I am. Because like I tell people, I'm unapologetically Black. I don't have to be obnoxious. I, when I walk into a room, I am who I am, and I bring a certain set of experiences and qualities to the table that I want to reach out and make sure other young Black men can be authentic and be who they are and continue to move forward. Because I think that's that's what I my responsibility of what I used to hear about each one, reach one. And I love to reach back, and then I love to see my mentees go on and excel and do better than me. And, and, and you know, the, the greatest reward is when you see somebody else get to where they want to be. Again, like I was saying, help somebody else get to where they want to and you'll get there too, is when you can see another young Black man coming along that you spent some time, that you put some talent into. You may even put a couple of resources or coins in his pocket, but then they're out here achieving and doing great things. And you just can sit back. You don't even have to have the accolade. They don't have to call you out, but they just tell the story. And sometimes your story's told and you're not even in the room. And what a great reward that is. Yeah, definitely, man. You know, I always say, you know, each one, teach one, reach one. Cause you know, in my community in Orlando, I'm in the, I'm up in the Apopka area and I'm a mentor here, you know, for Saturdays of the month, I go to New Journey when they do teachings at uh, Dream Lake. I can name drop the schools. They, I'm known there and I've had principals on this, on Black Men's Sundays pitching their movement. But the thing about it is like, when we talk about mentors, like I'm also a journalist, you know, I work for Channel 6 News, but they don't, they're just learning, oh, this dude talks on the mic. Like he's not just a cameraman. But one thing that I learned is that like in the black community from a journalistic perspective, the black man, the black man anchor, the black male reporter, you know, we're kind of like, we're, we're in demand, but there's not many of us trying to do that. You know, 
also in my community, when I look at mentors, a lot of times I'll go to the schools and I'm like, why am I the only black man here? Like outside of the community centers, you know, it may be the husband or the grandfather of the director. And I'm like, I'm the only black man here. So what can we do as black men to really, I feel like revitalize the mentorship role and to make it like, this is something that we should be doing because a lot of times, you know, it's all sisters mentoring us. You know, even me, I'm from a single parent house. I didn't have a father in my house. My mom was the, my father. She was my mother. She, you know, she was everything. But how can we revitalize the being a black man is cool and being a mentor to the next generation? Well, you know, I won't say that I have the cure to that, but we just got to get involved. Uh, we got to encourage you to continue to do this. First of all, I applaud you for being involved. Uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why when I joined my fraternity, it was so important to me. What are we doing in community? With our Sigma Beta Club, we're we're grooming the future Black men from age 8 to 18 through that program. The other Greek 9 organizations, uh, you know, several have those types of programs, the Kappas, the Alphas. And we're trying to reach those kids and mentor them. But you know what? I think the best thing to do is, is to consciously say, I'm going to give back. Because young men are watching. It's just what examples are we giving them to watch? And when we can give them a positive role model, you never know where it's going to go. I can tell you that the reason that I have achieved so much is because there's a gentleman, uh, God rest his soul, named Emmett Porter. When I was in Rochester, New York, he ran the Mighty Liberators Drum and Bugle Court. And I was a young 15-year-old trying to find myself. My music was my escape. And so I got in that my mom. And, you know, thank goodness for Black moms. Because a lot of times they raise great young Black men. But you still need a man to help sharpen that steel. Steel sharpens steel, right? So I got, and my dad was uh, still in my life. And, and, and they were still married, but sometimes it takes a village really, I couldn't see it in my dad. My dad is my hero. Let me make sure I get that straight. But sometimes I, my dad needed to have somebody help him help me and reach me through the music because dad didn't play musical instruments. Emmett got me into the drum and bugle corps. And in my ninth grade year, I had to come back home while we were out on tour and take uh an, an exam. Do you know he put me on a plane and flew me home from Philadelphia and flew me back to take that exam? That investment said that he cared, that I was worthy, that I was valuable, that somebody put their resources from a program in me. And that's that's an indelible memory. Another memory I have in upstate New York is Xerox Corporation had Black executives coming into our classrooms. And I got to see the first generation fiber optic and I'm here to tell you now that was in sixth grade. Well, I, I at the Urban League, I paid it forward and created the STEAM Academy, Science, Technology, Engineering, Arts, and Math in, at Evans High School. And the whole goal was to reach kids and introduce them to STEM like it was introduced to me. As you heard, my undergrad degree is in information technology. So I truly am the geek who can speak, right? But when I saw that, that inspired me because I could look at that man and say, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And I think the, the greatest way of saying it is uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I got to spend some time with him this weekend, uh, General Charles Q. Brown, the highest ranking military officer in the United States. And he makes this simple statement. 
They got to see it to be it. Young Black men, the reason we need to mentor and go back into our classrooms and our communities is they got to see it in order to be it. What they see, they will emulate. You know, and we, we give them positive role models and we give them positive reinforcement and we come alongside those moms raising them as single moms, you know, and because those are some powerful women who help raise a young man to be a young man. You know, what we can do is come along and augment that by being able to give them good examples to follow. I hope that makes sense because that's, that's the one that's near and dear to me. And that, you know, I always wanted to be able to pay it forward. Somebody invested in me. I feel my responsibility is to invest in someone else. No, that's great information, man. And like I said, you know, coming from a single parent household, I can definitely relate to that. And that's, and that's where the question came from, you know, but let's, let's also talk because I feel like a lot of black men, you know, we have great jobs, we make good money, but a lot of brothers are kind of like, you, when I was in my twenties, the job was fun, but you know, I'm in my forties now back hurt a little bit. You know, I'm getting a little aches and pains. They, they're kind of, I feel like brothers tell me they don't really feel like their life purpose, their life purpose has changed from 21 to 23. Now they're 44, 45 or 50. They're like, I'm trying to restore my life's purpose. Like it was fun. You know, I was getting up early. Didn't matter. Now, all of a sudden it's kind of like, uh, it's like a headache now. So how do we still like, cause the last thing I hate doing, I hate waking up two, three in the morning. And I'm already thinking about, okay, today I got this going on. I got that going on. Like, I'm not having fun. I'm not saying me, but I'm just saying like some, some days I don't have fun. I'm just being honest. So how do we restore our life's purpose and make sure that we're enjoying these days? Because for me, you know, I feel like I get so locked into the job and the family life and the bills that you know, a family member may call in a panic. Hey, you know, X, Y, Z, you need to come here. So-and-so sick. And then it takes you back to, man, this is really what life's about. But I kind of let the, I kind of let the the financial side run me. And that's a lot of black men say, you know, you got white people problems now. So, you know, how do we restore our purpose in life as black men, brother? So for me, you know, I went through that at age 35. And I'm, I'm proud to say I'm 62 years young. I had to figure out where where was I, you know, because I, I had those same questions. It was like it wasn't fun anymore. I did. I was making nice money, but I wasn't happy. I wasn't getting out of it what I wanted. And what I had to do for me, I had to return to my spiritual foundation, whatever that is for an individual, whoever that is. I'm not going to tell you who to believe in and who to worship. But, you know, when I found my spiritual purpose and got reconnected, things began to make sense because I needed that strength in order to get through some of the most difficult times. And I thought I had seen them all at, at, by age 40. But, it, you know, that's what it became a higher purpose, a higher calling for me. And so when I wrote the book, Restore, Rekindling the Passion, Restoring the Joy and Purpose to Your Life, is I needed to go in and take a look and say, you know, where am I now? Because there was now stood for, because there's no other way to get to where I'm going if I don't understand where I am now. And I needed to sit down. And one of the things I did, Corey, was I started journaling. I started to write down and ask myself questions. Where am I professionally? And where do I want to be? Where am I personally? 
and where do I want to be? What do I want my life to look like? And when I started writing it down, it was something that I, I you know, all my life I'd been told, write it down, write it down, write it down. But when I started to actually do it, it became therapeutic because then I could write it down and go back and read it. And so when I wrote Rekindling the Passion, I actually put it right there in the book. I would take people on a passion pit stop and say, where are you spiritually? Where are you personally? Where are you professionally? And where do you want to be? And when we take the time to do that, that's how we can get in touch with our inner selves and know where we want to go. Because otherwise, we're just going through the motions. And yeah, we'll get burnt out going through the motions. But when you can take it and journal it and put it down, you know, um, my wife does something where she gets up way early, way too early in the morning for me. Um, she uh, up 4.15, she's going to go pray and journal. I'm like, yeah, girlfriend, I'm going to catch you around about 6.15. On the, on the downside, I'm still journal. I'm going to get mine, okay? But I found writing it down gave it, it, it put it into the universe and actuated it. And when I started to map out my plans and put it in, in it down, it begins to come alive, to so to speak, because you're putting it out there and you're, you're making a commitment to yourself. And there, you know, when you, when you read through the book, you know, I truly think that dreams are what we have to go back to doing, even as Black men. You know, I break down dreams as there are desires realized, evidenced, and manifested. And when you, we can put them down, when we can put down our desires, we can be, then do the things that actualize them and make them real. And then they begin to manifest. And when, when they start to manifest, then that puts the purpose back into living. That puts the joy back into living. Because otherwise, bro, I've seen some very unhappy rich folks. <laughs> <laughs> and they in all shapes, sizes, colors, creeds, backgrounds, okay? But when I have seen some very wealthy, personal wealth people in terms of how they feel, how they enjoy life, how they experience life, and it ain't always about the bank account. I've seen people who have made less be more happier than people who have made more and have everything but they're still unhappy. So I think you have to find it on a personal level. It's a spiritual reconnection for me. When I did that, and often I have to go back to that, when I do that to get grounded, I drive back to Oviedo, bro, and I go and park in front of the spot that where my old house was when I was a kid so that I can stay grounded and realize you came from this. What you've achieved is a blessing, but remember where you came from. Write down your plans and your dreams and your goals and then go out there and get the receipts to make them actual. Oh, man. Great, great information, man. First off, I got like three more questions for you. I told you I'm the Allen Ives. Once, so, like, once I get revved up, I can go all day. But first off, brother, you enjoying yourself on Black Men Sundays? I'm having a ball, man. This is great. This is, you know what? This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to chop it up and share, you know? Um, I remember being a kid. I used to love to be in the room where my uncle would come in, and he was the first Marine in the family because I knew that was going to be crazy. And I didn't know he was secretly cursing because I didn't know what Mammy Tapping was until I got older. But uh, being in that room and chopping it up and hearing other men share their experiences was incredible for me and it laid a foundation. So being able to do this with you today has been totally worthwhile. Thank you for allowing me to come and share. Yeah, definitely, man. And, you know, it, it, it hits home for me because, you know, my younger brother, he's 32 years old. He's, he's retired from the Marines. He's retired. I'm like, you're retired. He 
He's from New York, but he bought a house down in uh, North Carolina and sold it. So, you know, he kind of like, yeah, I'm the guy right now. So, you know, when I get a Marine on the show, you know, I, I'm going to give y'all brothers some love. Plus, you know, you're born in Sanford, raised in Oviedo, Rochester, New York. You in Jacksonville right now. You know, it's a lot of love in all them spots. So I definitely appreciate you for coming on Black Men Sundays. I'm glad you're enjoying yourself, but I can't let you slide just yet, you know, because you know, we, we got to talk some some investing kind of conversation. So before I let you go, man, if I'm looking at your portfolio, if I'm looking at your investment portfolio, if I'm looking at your stocks, because I'm hearing bonds coming back. I don't know if you got any bonds, but I'm hearing brothers like, yo, y'all need to get some bonds. Y'all need to get some gold bars. Like I'm telling you, y'all need to get in the game. Y'all need to get some crypto. Is I'm hearing crypto in 24 is coming back. So from your point of view, from an investment perspective, should I spend more of my finances on um, group stocks or should I do the Robin Hood, the chase where I'm doing like the individual stocks, like from your point of view? Because you got more, you know, you got more seasoning than I do, but I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to get my paprika right too. Well, I think, you know, the best formula is go get that Lowry season salt, but make sure you get in where you fit where it fits your purpose and your desires. And the first thing is to reach out to an advisor and find somebody who can sit down and listen to you and what your goals are so that you can align your goals. Here, you can dabble in Robinhood. I play with Robinhood. But when, you, when you're looking at it, if you're in at work, you want to know about your 401k and you want to maximize your 401k and take the free money. Because if your employer is matching, well, I give away free money. If they're matching up to 5%, make sure you're putting in 5% so that you collect that and then stay long enough to stay vested so that when you do, if you do decide to leave, you take it all with you. But a financial advisor, don't you don't have to have millions to talk to somebody. You can start while you are getting started so that you get a game plan and they give you a roadmap to be successful. I think that's the best advice I can give is because what I have learned as a, a a licensed uh, financial representative years ago, and I'm not now, so I can't give investment advice. What I learned, though, was finding somebody who was more knowledgeable about it than I was, plugging into them and letting them genuinely help me and lay out a game plan. You know, you, you can get it started in a mutual fund as little as $50 or $100, but then get excited about building wealth and building building resources. You know, I remember the rule of 72, which is something I can't speak about. The rule of 72 says that you take the amount of interest you receive and divide it by the number of years and you'll find out how quickly your money doubles. So if you take and put $100 away for 20 years at 12% interest, it's going to double every six years. Okay. And when it doubles, you know, in, in a 20 year time span, that's $100,000. You know, that's game changing for a black man in America when the average wealth or the average savings is less than twenty-five dollars to $35,000. So learning early enough, getting with a financial plan, getting an investment club, create an investment club and invite in an investment advisor and have them sit down with you and, and get excited about coming together to learn about stocks and building a portfolio. I think that's the best advice I could give, Court. And that's great information, man. And I, you know, I, I feel like over the last... Over my generational wealth journey, I, I'm starting to see a lot of brothers saying, you know, generational wealth is a gimmick. You know, financial advisors, accountants are trying to are trying to get you to invest in this, but it's not really 
a thing because by 2052, and I've seen this in a lot of, or you probably saw it too, by 2052, there will be no black wealth. What are your thoughts on that? That's scary because years ago, uh, the reason that uh, cities were bombed and destroyed was because we learned how to invest in ourselves. And I'm thinking about the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm thinking about when we go that far, you can go right to Okoe. Uh, the wealth was in land and it was taken away. And, you know, that that bothers me. But what we can do is we can we must teach about it. We cannot have that segment of history just erased away because it doesn't feel good for some people. We must teach about it. But then we must put plans in action to change it. Because um, last time I, I looked, money was green. It didn't have a race or a color attached to it. It had an accumulation factor if you put it away. And if we became more focused on building for generational wealth rather than instant gratification, we got to get out of instant gratification. Um, I will tell you, there's a great book that was out there. Uh, I never got a chance to read it. I read excerpts of it. But the Jewish principle, which talked about delaying today, delaying your return on investment to later years was a better principle than just living today. I want to encourage people to go out and read things like that, to understand that it's not about the flash and the bling of today. It's about the generational wealth of legacy that you pass on for generations to come. And, you know, because that was, you know, a lot of people say, well, I don't need any life insurance. Well, one of the vehicles for building generational wealth was life insurance because we didn't have the money so we could invest in the insurance policy to create the wealth. And I think we had to change our mindsets, even at our churches. We look at the big churches in other communities and we say, wow, how do they do that? Because they go out and they buy a policy and they endow the church with the policy. Now, imagine if we were to do that in our communities and then we had ways of putting that money back into the community. We could raise a Tulsa again. We can continue to invest in Apopka and Eatonville and continue to grow them. The Unity of Eatonville Federal Credit Union, which was something I was a part of coming alongside at Star to help that credit union get up firmly on its feet. That's about generational wealth. Let's put money into that credit union, continue to grow it, continue to staff it, watch it. It's one branch now with two employees, but it will be there to serve a community. And it's the first credit union in the 135 year history of Eatonville, done by the people of Eatonville for the people of Eatonville. When other financial institutions could have done that years earlier, this one is there and we need to sustain and support things like that. So. Uh, those are my feelings is that we must still continue to invest in ourselves, in our communities, in our families, and in our generations to come. Great information. And my final question, you know, I've been dying to ask you this, but I kind of had to save it for the back end. I was kind of, you know, biting my, I've been gritting my teeth the whole show. I'm glad there's a mute button. But, you know, um, you know, I live in Florida. We know who our governor is, right? But I feel like from a generational wealth point of view we can get to the club by 11 but when it's time to vote it's oh, it's hot and i'm not going if it ain't the president i'm not really voting but i'm saying no like if you a homeowner your yearly taxes if you don't vote like your taxes is in the air so how important as a black man outside of voting for the president right how important is voting for like local officials, the governor, and all? Just talk about how that can disrupt 
or propel your generational wealth? Well, I'll tell you, it's real simple. The politics that affect you closely are the ones at home. Your city, your county commissioners, your state officials are the ones who set policy for the state that you live in. They set the tax rate through that vote. You know, when they're talking about the millage, they actually put that out for a vote. And if you don't vote, others are voting and deciding how much you should be taxed. If you want to have a voice in that, you got to go vote. You know, I, I heard young people when I was on the campaign trail in 2022, well, my vote doesn't count. Uh, we lost my race by 4,300 votes, and we saw 18% of the people who had voted before in that race did not vote. Had 10%, I lost by less than 3%. Had 10% showed up out of the votes that we had assumed would vote, Corey, we'd have had a different outcome. I just watched down in Louisiana where a race for sheriff between a white gentleman and a black gentleman was decided by one vote and the black gentleman won. And then the court overturned the election and has called for a new election. This was yesterday. One vote. But they said there was no that the law that they cited was when there was no clear delineation of how many votes may have been illegally cast that the vote, the, the election would be void and they would have to run another election. It wouldn't be that if we'd have had more people turn out. And we can't just turn out for president. We got to turn out for governor. We got to turn out for midterm races. We got to turn out for city council races. I've used to I I've watched and looked at it and seen that even in local townships, races are sometimes decided by hundreds of votes, not thousands. Of 21,000 eligible to vote, you might get 2,300. 10% to 14% to show up to vote. I think the best way to, to characterize it is John Lewis said we had the right to vote. The John Lewis Act is still sitting in Congress awaiting approval because we don't have the right people there to carry it through. Why? Because we are not voting. People are not voting. And what you have to be careful of, there are some to say, well, if they're not going to vote, then they don't need the right to vote. That part. We need to go out and exercise the greatest strength and the greatest power we had, as said by Lyndon Baines Johnson of Texas, the president of the United States, when meeting and, and having to work with Whitney M. Young Jr. on moving the Civil Rights Act of 1964 ahead was the power of the vote. Because everyone in America is given the right to vote. It can be taken away based upon consequences and things that happen. But even that we have seen where in the state of Florida, people voted to restore it. But because we didn't have people in the legislature enough to fight for it, they even put changes to that. So it affects your pocket. It affects your lifestyle. It affects the community you lived in. It affects the services that you receive. It affects your ability to live a quality of life that you are due in this country. So I think everyone Everyone should press out. If we can press out and go see Beyonce at $600 a ticket, we should be able to press out and go and cast a vote. If we can press out and see every Tyler Perry movie and every Tyler Perry play, we can take time. And if we have to take the day off to vote, we can vote. And a lot of companies like Vistar, we actually gave our employees time off to go cast their vote. We need to work for companies that think like that. We need to work for people who see that the the essence of America is in the vote. And be careful that if we don't go out and exercise it, like, like uh, the late John Lewis said, my fraternity brother, if we don't use it, we're in jeopardy of losing it.
Wow. You know, I think that wraps it up. Ali L. Braswell Jr., my brother. Thanks for coming on Black Men Sundays, brother. You just got back in town from the Army-Navy game. And I saw the game yesterday. I thought Navy's about to come back. But I was like, damn, them Army boys, you know, scooped that ball and ran it back. I was like, all right, it's over now. That took me a nap after that. You know, I'm getting old now. You know, I go to bed early, up early. With because it was with seconds left, the Army stopped them from scoring again, which would have won the game. Exactly, exactly, man. So Ali L. Braswell Jr., man, thanks for coming on Black Men Sundays. Thanks for so many messages, so many gems. And brothers, engage, invest, grow. You can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble online, or you can go to my website at braswellglobal.com and click on the button and order it right there. If you want a signed copy, go there. And uh, we'll, we'll make sure you get a signed copy of it. But Corey, thanks for having me. Thanks for investing time in me and, and and starting the catalyst of a new relationship. And I hope to stay in touch. And maybe one day I'll get invited back again. But it's been a pleasure to come and just share with you. Yeah, definitely, brother. And I want you to enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy the rest of your week. Holidays are coming up. Merry Christmas, my brother. And enjoy. I, I appreciate it. When I say this was a great show, I know the brothers are going to be like, wow, I'm mad I wasn't there. But you know what? I got the Iverson, the whole show. So thanks for coming on Black Men Sundays, brother. Many blessings to you, you and your family. And peace out. Thank you. It's a Black Man Sunday. Time to put all childish things away.